0: All right, in your folders, we just simply have to jump in somewhere for our text this morning, and I am going to be reading to you from Acts chapter number 16, verse 20 through 34. So if you have a Bible uh, or uh, an electronic device, or in your folders there, you have this passage in front of you, Acts chapter number 16, verses 20 through 34. Here God's Word says, and brought, and we'll develop that out. I know we're beginning right in the middle of a story, but we'll unpack that more in just a minute. And brought them to the magistrate, saying, These men, that is Paul and Silas, Silas this missionary uh, missionary crew, Paul and Silas, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, surely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, waking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword, a small dagger. And would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he came, I'm sorry, then he called for light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas, and brought them out and said, Sirs, what? must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. And he, that is this Philippian jailer, the one who was in charge, he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized he and all his straightway or immediately and when he had brought them into his house he set meat before them and rejoiced believing in God with all of his house I want to speak today on the thought of salvation made simple salvation made simple it is quite possible to complicate many simple matters i experienced something like this just recently i will not bore you with too many of the details but over the last couple of years i worked as really it was a full-time part-time job at ups united parcel service i left there in february as I simply could not pastor well while working 50 or 55 hours at a high-stress, mid-management job there. But near the end of my short tenure there, I was able to spend just a couple of weeks training my replacement. She had just recently been hired. And as I was showing her how we did a certain repetitive task, Then she said to me, she said, Mr. Lewis, instead of doing it like this, why don't we just do it this way? And she showed me a much improved and simpler way of doing something that I had done hundreds of times over the last several months. And it was like the proverbial light bulb went off or went on in my head while at the same time I wanted to kick myself or not have thinking or thought of the same thing earlier. A task that I had spent five minutes doing, through her suggestion, we were able to do in about 45 seconds. And in UPS time, that's a huge savings. And sometimes that's just the way that life is. We can unintentionally complicate things things that are, in fact, quite simple. Unfortunately, this same thing often happens not in some trivial matter like returning packages at UPS, but rather life's most important subject, the matter of how lost sinners are saved. Christians, myself included, can be guilty of inadvertently Overcomplicating conversion or of making the act of becoming a believer much more complex than the scriptures ever do. For example, you don't have to understand all the intricate details of theological jargon or doctrines like justification or sanctification, or imputation, propitiation. You don't have to understand all the intricacies of that in order to become a Christian. Now, those are good words, and those are necessary words to help us define the doctrine of salvation, but you can become a Christian without ever even knowing those words exist. Yet on the other hand, Well-meaning believers can oversimplify salvation and require less of sinners, lost sinners, than what the Bible does in order to be saved. Conversion. Becoming a Christian is not merely some mental or emotional decision brought on by some tragic experience. And while I realize, and I know that people mean well, I cannot tell you how many people I have counseled over the years who were lost, but thought that they were saved because many years ago, they answered an altar call and repeated a prayer after a preacher and someone told them they were saved. Or, or, at VBS, or at a funeral many, many years earlier, they lifted their hand while, of course, every head bowed and every eye was closed to ask Jesus to come into their hearts. Now, we must concede that sometimes God does save people when these gospel gimmicks are employed but it is not because of them, it is in spite of them. Folks, we do not want to complicate the message of salvation. Nor should we become make nor should we make becoming a Christian any less demanding than the Lord requires. I don't want to fall into either of those ditches when seeking to win others to the Lord. God forbid that we would ever put stumbling blocks in the way by making the simple message of salvation something that it isn't. Words matter. How we handle the gospel matters. And as important a message as this is, we ought to be clear, crystal clear, and articulate and use our words well, defining what it means To be a Christian and how someone can become a Christian. Therefore, I would ask that you would agree with me, concede with me today, that the best way to be clear about the all important subject of salvation is to use Bible language, Bible teaching, and Bible example. When we are discussing this matter, I believe that to be the safest route, the scriptural route. And in this text, we are given a front row seat to the conversion of a lost sinner and details about how this transformation took place. In this passage, a hard-hearted Philippian jailer is broken by God and brought to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in these verses, we find a biblical model of how not just this one man and his family were saved, but how every person is saved or born again by the grace of God. Yes, yes, there are mysteries beyond mortal comprehension, in God's eternal covenant plan of redemption. But for our part, as mortal men and women, becoming a Christian is just this simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. But I need you, as my teacher used to say, I need you to put your thinking caps on with me this morning. When the Bible says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you must also recognize that we need to be able to accurately answer the unspoken but vital questions that lie underneath that statement. In other words, we need to be able to define What does it mean to believe? To believe. Believe what? And you say, well, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, believe what about the Lord Jesus Christ? What is it to believe in Him or on Him? And in Christianity, we throw around the term saved. We ask people, are you saved? Well... Saved from what? Have you thought about that? Saved from what? What do men, women, boys and girls need to be saved from? And how can anyone ever understand their need to be saved if no one has ever told them that they are lost? These are important questions that we must consider even under the idea of salvation made simple. In the passage today, we will see how a man and his family came to know their spiritual need and how they became born-again believers. If today you are under the sound of my voice and you are not a Christian, I pray that the Lord will use this message to open your heart and your mind to see your need of Christ. Now, we are going to work through this passage together, but hold on to your chair. I have eight divisions that I have made within this text, but we will move through most of them quickly. Most of them quickly. The first thing I would have you notice from our passage, thinking on the idea of the simplicity of salvation, or salvation made simple, I want you to notice here these evangelists, these missionaries, first of all, suffering persecution. If you would notice with me, verses 20 through 24, Paul and Silas answer that Macedonian call. And they come to preach the gospel to the city of Philippi. And when they come there, they, like always the case, meet with opposition. And not just the opposition of men, but even the opposition of Satan, the wicked one, as he seeks to oppose the furtherance of God's glorious kingdom. And so when they come into town, they are met with this snide, sarcastic, demon-possessed young lady. And at some point, the Apostle Paul has just quite had enough, and he turns around to this young lady after having heard all of the sarcasm he wants to hear from her, and he says, "...I adjure thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out." And he casts the, de- the devil or demon out of this young lady, but when he does so, those who in, are in town who profited from this young lady who, and we don't have time to get into all of this, but this young lady, because of the satanic influence in her life, was at least seemingly able to predict or foretell the future. But when Christ came in and kicked the devils out, she had no longer able to do that. And the people in town who profited from this poor young lady's tormented, tormented soul, they weren't happy about the fact that they were losing money now. And the best thing they thought they could do was get rid of these two preachers. So they go to the powers that be, the governing authorities, and they say to them, "These men have rolled into town, and they're causing all kinds of trouble. Why you just don't understand? They're asking us to do things that are contrary to the law of uh, of the Romans." Now. I don't want to keep us out here all day, but listen, i got to drive further than anybody, so I don't feel sorry for any of you. I really don't. But don't be surprised when if you take a stand for righteousness, a public, bold stand for righteousness, accusations are made against you that are not true. Your words are twisted. Your words are distorted. And that's exactly what happened to these two men, to Paul and Silas. And so... The magistrate, the powers that be, arrest Paul and Silas. If you will notice in verse 22, the multitude rises up against them in uh, and, and righteous, really a self-righteous indignation, rend off their clothes and command to beat them. And then if you would, in verse 23, and when they had laid many stripes on them, they cast them into prison. What had... Paul and Silas done wrong? Would you tell me that? What is it that they had done to merit this type of response from the people in the city and the governing authorities? The only answer is this. Yea, and all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. I want you to hear me, Christian family, Christian friends. We are right now able to do what we are doing right here today. But there may come a time when doing what you're doing will no longer be allowable, condoned. And we, we you may have to make a decision, are we going to take a stand for truth and morality and holiness and godliness and biblical principles? And if we do, are we willing to suffer persecution for it? We've lived a long time under the banner of freedom in America, but unless God grants national repentance that is eroding right from underneath us, don't be so naive to think that it won't come a point, even in our country, even like where I live in a very conservative small town, where it will not cost you something to be a Christian. You need to be prepared, mentally prepared, spiritually prepared, that if you take a stand for godliness, you too can suffer persecution. We find this is true of them. They are beaten, and then they are cast into. And I find this quite interesting. Verse 24: Who, having received this, is the jailer, the man, the, the uh, keeper of the prison, the warden, we may call him. Having received this charge from the local governing authorities, he doesn't just put them in prison. Would you notice right there in verse 24? He throws them under the prison, under the jail. He puts them in the inner prison and fastens their feet in stocks. Now, do you know what stocks are? These heavy wooden and iron uh, clamps that are pressed down around the ankles to keep you not only from running, but to keep you from moving. So think about this. They're not only, Paul and Silas are not only put in prison, they are put in the inner prison, dark, damp, stingy, I guarantee cold, rock walls, it had to have been a miserable experience, but then the jailer said, just to make sure they don't get out of here, I'm going to put their feet fast in stocks and lock them up in the inner prison, in prison. Which leads me, secondly, to a surprising reaction. A surprising reaction in verse 25. And at midnight, Paul and Silas laid in the floor and cried and cried and cried. Wait a minute. That's the Lewis Kiger version because that's what he would have done, right? What did they do? In the middle of the night, having been beaten, backs bloodied, Sore, there in that inner prison, dark, damp, surrounded by other criminals who had truly done wrong. What is it? How is it that they reacted? They began to pray and lift their voices and praise to God. What a wonderful example that is of how we should respond when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not, not when We act like jerks and somebody treats us bad. But when we are truly standing for righteousness, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Jesus didn't tell us to lay down and cry. He said instead, rejoice, for great is your reward in heaven. I find this an incredibly surprising reaction. It is the grace of God on full display, is it not? that they are able to respond in this way. Can you hear Paul and Silas in the prison lifting their voices, singing in Christ alone, how great thou art, to God be the glory, or probably a little more accurately, singing some psalms of the Old Testament. How dare Christian people sing psalms. But that's another sermon for another day. But nonetheless, there they are proclaiming through song and prayer that God is faithful even now. Which then leads to, thirdly, a series of miracles in verse number 26, 27, and 28. Notice this, there was a great earthquake. The foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bands were loosed. Now let me just stop right there. At some point, each of us are going to have to defi- decide for ourselves whether we believe the historical accounts like the one that we are reading about or not. Is the Bible, is the book trustworthy or not? Or is this just some fairy tale, some make believe story? Is that what it is? Or can we actually believe that God, in his sovereign providence, sent an earthquake? Now, you want to talk about some miracles? Think about this. Sent an earthquake, jailhouse rock, to the next level sent an earthquake that shook the foundations of the prison. And in verse 26 it says all the prison doors were opened and everyone's handcuffs fell off. Now that's a miracle. It doesn't say the walls came caving in. It doesn't say the roof collapsed on them. It says that God in His sovereign power sent this curious earthquake in a miraculous supernatural way. Now, is that real? Is that what happened or not? You've got to make up your own mind. You've got to decide for yourself whether you believe the book or not. So that the very prisoners, their handcuffs, their uh, clasps, those things that were holding them, they simply fell off of them. The doors swung open, but that's not the only miracle. You also see in this that nobody ran. Nobody left. Verse 27, at the close of it, this Philippian jailer supposed that the prisoners had fled, but at the close of verse 28, what did Paul say? We're all here. Now, you want to talk about a miracle. I I think I could be fed pretty safe in saying there in Perry we have a probation center we have a jail. Not too far down the road there's a prison. But I imagine that if all the doors come swinging open and the gates were open, some of them men and women would be hightailing out of town. Don't you think so? Rather than staying there, they would be getting gone. Not. And I, I, I feel pretty sure that wouldn't just happen in Perry. That probably happened in Washington, Illinois, too. I, I doubt that prisoners here like being in prison any more than they do in Perry. But God, again, in His providential power, saw to it that not one single prisoner left. This is, in my mind, a series of miracles. But then notice, if you would, fourthly, a suicidal warden. In verse number 27, the keeper of the prison wakes. This earthquake wakes him up. The sound of those jail doors swinging and clanking open awakening him. He sees the doors are open. He pulls out his dagger and is going to take his own life. That may sound somewhat strange to us, but it wouldn't be strange in that circumstance. He knew full well that if he did not keep the charge given him that he would face a cruel, painful death at the hands of his Roman superiors. So why not a quick, painless death with a little dagger through the heart and get it over with, rather than suffering the anger and indignation... Everybody okay back there? All right. Rather than suffering the anger and indignation of the Roman power. So he wanted to take his own life. He was going to commit suicide. However, again, God intervenes and stops this from happening. Verse 28, Paul cries with a loud voice, Don't do this. Don't hurt yourself. Again, Paul, soul-loving, compassionate missionary, says to this Philippian jailer, don't harm yourself. He calls for a light. This man does. And he springs in. He comes in trembling. Had he heard the message of Paul and Silas earlier? Had he heard them singing psalms? What is it that God used? We do not know for sure. But God was working in the heart in the life of this Philippian jailer. And he comes in trembling, knowing that it's a miracle after miracle jail doors open, gates open, and yet no one is left, and he comes in, and he asks what I believe is the supreme question. Fifthly, the supreme question out of verse number 30, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, this man did not ask, Why are y'all still here? Or, Anybody want to explain this miracle of this earthquake? Instead, he asked the superlative question of all questions. The supreme question. What must I do to be saved? And we're going to stop right there for just a moment. What does he mean, saved? What does it mean? to be saved. The word means rescued or delivered. If you would think of someone who is out in the ocean on a lifeboat with sharks circling around, no food, no hope, they are very soon to perish. But another ship comes and rescues them and Gets them on board and delivers them safely to land and even to their home. They have been rescued. That individual has been delivered in like manner, you and I. We are under the bondage of sin, slaves to sin, sold in the slave market to sin. But God, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, rescues us. He delivers us. He saves us from our sins so that we are no longer under the penalty of those sins because Jesus bore in His body our sin debt while He was nailed to a Roman cross. There, Jesus at Calvary did the work of saving and redeeming lost Hellbound sinners. And when this man comes in and says, what do I need to do to be saved? He's not talking about being rescued from the Roman authorities. He means, what is it that I need to do to be right with God? To be delivered from my past, saved from my sin. What is it that I need to do so that all of my iniquities can be washed away? This is The supreme question, what must I do to be saved? But I mentioned something in the introduction to my sermon that I wanted to prompt some thoughts into your mind. Saved from what? Our natural reaction as Christians is to say, well, I am saved from the torments of an eternity separated from God and the flames of hell. That's true. That's true. Thank God. Through the glorious grace of our sovereign maker, we do not have to suffer hell itself. But that's not fully what we are saved from. Are we saved from hell? Yes. Are we saved from sin? Yes. Are we saved from God's fury, holy, righteous anger against disobedience? Yes. But ultimately, and I hope that you will hear me and meditate on this thought, ultimately, we are saved by God, from God, and for God. You hear me? Saved by God, from God, for God. R.C. Sproul, while on a college campus, someone asked him, are you saved? And that thought began to roll in his mind, saved from what? And he fled to his dorm room and lying there in his bed, it became real to him. I need to be saved from God. From God's holy, righteous anger and indignation towards sin. But the only person who can save us from God is God. And that's exactly what the Lord jesus has done for us which leads then to this simple reply number six this simple reply in verse 31 he asked what must i do notice what they say believe on the lord jesus christ and you will be saved but before we explore what paul did say I want to take just a moment and think about what he did not say. Very quickly. What must I do to be saved? Well, here's what Paul did not say. He did not say you need to be baptized. He did not say you need to join the church. He did not say you need to give a lot of money. He did not say you need to observe the sacraments. He did not say repeat this prayer. He did not say repeat this many... Hail Mary's. He said none of those things. Instead, he said, believe. Believe on, in, the substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does it mean to believe? The Word has the idea of trusting. To have faith. But not just any kind of faith. Saving faith. You know, we live in a society, I, I would imagine some of you have heard this, when you try and witness to people, try and tell others about Jesus, I'm not going to say share your testimony, but when you try to tell others about these things, I'm just picking at Tom a little bit. Have you ever heard anybody say, well, I consider myself a very spiritual person? Well, I've had somebody say that to me, a couple of somebodies, and I say, I have no idea what that means. I consider myself a very thin person, but that doesn't make it so. Amen. Or others say, well, I have faith, but faith in what? Faith, saving faith, justifying faith, must have an object. So when Paul says believe, we need to be answered believe what? believe what? Have faith in what? Or faith in who? And again, listen, I don't want to complicate the matter of salvation. I want to make it as simple as possible, which is why I'm trying to define these words. But I don't want to make it so broad, just throwing out the idea of believe, just making it so broad, so generic, that we get the idea that just because somebody says, well, I believe in God, that automatically makes them a Christian. So believe what? And the answer is this, to believe God's record of His Son. That's what you must believe. You must believe that Jesus is who He claimed to be and that Jesus did what He claimed to do. What is it that He claimed to come here for? He came to save sinners. Thou shalt call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. And when we compel people to believe, we are saying to them, and we need to be clear with our language, you need to believe that Jesus Christ is the only suitable sacrifice for your sins. There is no other. As the Bible will say, there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Only the name of Jesus Christ. So listen to me. You must believe Jesus is who He claimed to be. And you must believe that He came. That He came here and accomplished what He set out to do. That is, redeeming His people. So what is the object of your faith? You say, well, I have faith. What is the object of your faith? And I want to hear, I I hope you'll hear this. Your faith must not be in your faith. I, I counsel with too many people who wonder whether or not they're truly Christians. And you know why a lot of them struggle with assurance of salvation? Because they're looking for confidence in their faith. But your faith shouldn't be in your faith. Your faith should be in the finished work of Jesus and that alone. If you, look, I don't always feel like a Christian, and I certainly don't always act like one. My faith, my confidence, my assurance cannot be in how faithful I feel. But our confidence in Christians' faith must be placed in the finished work of Jesus, and that's it. I want to take just a moment here and I want to explore this idea of saving or justifying faith. When Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, would you notice the beginning of verse 32? And they spake unto him the word of the Lord. That is, Paul explained what it means to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He explained what Jesus did in the behalf of sinners to this Philippian jailer and to his family. And that's what I want to do with you. I want to explain a little bit more about what that means to believe or to have faith, to have saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Better minds than my own tell us that justifying faith has three essential components. The first is knowledge. Knowledge. That is, you must know, in order to be a Christian, for this Philippian jailer to be saved, to be converted, you've got to know the gospel. You've got to know what Jesus did. You've got to know the record that God has given of His Son, that Christ The virgin-born, eternal Son of God came and lived a holy and sinless life, perfect and pure in every single thought, word and deed throughout all of His life, and went to Calvary. He spread out His arms. It was nailed to a cross. And there God poured out His wrath, His fury on His Son, making Him to be sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us. There Jesus suffered and died in our stead and shed His blood that we can be washed whiter than snow in that crimson flow. They took His lifeless body down off the cross and put it in a borrowed tomb. Do you know why they buried Jesus in a borrowed tomb? Because He wasn't going to need it long, so He just borrowed it for a little while. Because three days later, He rose again, victorious over death, hell, and the grave. And you've got to know that. You've got to know the Gospel of Jesus Christ that God in Christ has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves, what we will not do for ourselves. That's the good news of the Gospel of the Kingdom of Jesus Christ. But not just know it, you must assent. That is, you must you must assent or confess or believe that it is true, this account, this record that God has given of His Son is true. Not just that it is a historical fact, but you must believe that the message is true. But more than that, number three, you must trust. You must trust. You must believe, and I want to bring this home. You must believe what Christ did and the biblical account of what He did But hold on. You must believe that He did that for you. For you. Not just that it happens. Can I I say it a little bit like James would say it? you believe that there is one God? Big deal. Big deal. You acknowledge the fact that God exists, so what? The devil's acknowledge that and tremble before the presence of their Creator. It's not enough to just know God is real. It's not just enough to know that Jesus lived and died. But you must believe that what He did, He did for your redemption. You must know. You must dissent. But you must trust that I need to be saved. And that's exactly what happened to this Philippian jailer. God the Holy Spirit Revealed to him his blindness, his lostness, and the fact that he could not save himself. But praise God, somebody told him about Jesus Christ who could save him from his sins. If I may, for our crowd from yesterday, if I may refer to Galatians one more time, listen to what the Apostle Paul says, I am crucified with Christ, Galatians 2:20. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh by the faith of the Son of God, now listen to this, who loved me and gave Himself for me. And that's exactly what you must know in order for you to be saved. And when I say believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm not just saying have some head knowledge that the Bible is a reliable account. That's not it. More than that, do you have a personal, saving relationship with Jesus of Nazareth? Have you acknowledged that you are a sinner in need of salvation? Have you trusted in what Christ has done for you? Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he is saying, you must believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah of God, sent to be the sin bearer, who yielded up his life as an atonement for sin. Listen, this is important. This is imperative. Supreme question, simple answer, believe. But underneath that idea of believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to make sure we don't overcomplicate nor that we oversimplify what that means to believe. But then, seventhly, salvation received. Verses 32-34, through "...and they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house." And notice the change. you want to know? If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. He is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Salvation came to this Philippian jailer, and it was evidenced by the change, the transformation in him. Notice, when he that is that jailer took them out of the prison, brought them to his home, cleaned them up, nursed on them, and brought them food and something to drink. Notice the close of verse 34, believing in God with all of his house. Notice there's a change in this man. Earlier he, he didn't care one bit about Paul and Silas. They were just two more simpletons, two more overzealous Jewish uh, religious nuts that just needed to get out of my way. But now, he cared for those that had communicated the gospel to him. And the change in him was evidenced by his willingness to put himself out there and look after, tend to the needs of God's men, Paul and Silas i do not say and i'm not suggesting that when you become a, a christian that you're sinless no no i don't believe in sinless perfection in this life i just i've been around enough to know we still have an adamic nature we still fall and creatures. we're still going to fall short so i'm not saying that in order to be christian you got to be sinless i'm saying to be a christian you have got to trust in the sinless savior who atone for your sins. I struggle with sin. You will too. None of us have overcome every temptation. But regardless of how many times I fail, God has never failed me. He cannot deny Himself. Great is His faithfulness. His family heard the message. This man was saved, born again, became a Christian, and he wanted his family to hear the good news of Jesus Christ which leads me to my final and your favorite point the last one the number 8 I just don't want to quit preaching submission to baptism I don't know here's the beauty of this I don't know who's who and what's what but if you were to ask The Apostle Paul, Silas, Timothy, Titus, on down through those lists of names from from the early pages of church history, the New Testament. If you were to ask them about being a Christian, and you said to them that you had never been baptized, they would look at you and say, Well, why do you think you are a Christian? Now, I hope I have made it clear I am in no wise suggesting that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. But I'm going to say this. If you are a born-again believer, why would you not want to follow your Lord in scriptural baptism? Why would you not submit to Him? Find me one example of a believer in the New Testament who does not immediately seek the waters of baptism after conversion. Find it for me if you would. In other words, we get this idea of baptism as church membership, and it's, it's not that it's not that, but it's more than that. Baptism is a public declaration that I belong to Jesus and Jesus belongs to me. And I want the whole world to know that I, the old man, is dead, and I'm rising to walk up in newness of life, and I want everybody to know I have been saved. I've been. Born again, I am a new creation in Christ, and I want the world to know it by a public demonstration of my faith. This man. I imagine some of the other jailers, some of the other prisoners, some of the others mocked and ridiculed say, Look at this man. Why, he, he's at one time was a hard, probably retired Roman soldier. Now, here he is being baptized and claiming to be a follower of Christ, but he could not care less what the world thought. Nor should you. Nor should you. I don't know who's a member and who's not a member, but I'm going to say this to you. You ought to be baptized because you're saved, certainly not in order to be saved. So I'm closing now I'm going to give you a few little final thoughts. I hope that I have helped make salvation simple. To make it clear, I don't want to complicate the message of salvation, nor do I want to muddy the message by making conversion less than what God demands. And what I hope is that if you are wondering, or if a loved one is wondering, what must I do to be saved, that you can tell them, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And then tell them what that means. Tell them what they're being saved from. Tell them what it means to believe. Tell them what saving faith truly is. For those of you who fool around on the internet, if you have not, I would highly encourage you to go to YouTube and there's a short three and a half minute video by Alistair Baird. And it's on the man on the middle cross. And if you can watch that, and it don't make you cry, you need to get right with Jesus. You really do. Because he makes reference to that thief on the cross as he entered into heaven. And the angels, as it were, asked, What are you doing here? Why, just hours ago, you were ridiculing the Son of God. Can you explain the doctrine of justification? The man says, no. Well, can you, can you talk about the depths of the inerrancy of the Word of God? And the man says, no. And finally, the angel says, and what are you doing here? And that thief responds by saying, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's the message of salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Today as we leave here, I want to leave you with a question. I want you today, if you confess to be a follower of Christ, I want you to finish this sentence in your own mind and in your own heart. I am a Christian because answer that